So back to Acts, where we took a little uh, detour into went through Timothy for a while. Acts 20, 31. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. So this, we're toward the conclusion of his address, and there's an imperative here, be on the alert. That same word could be, uh, in some, some of your versions, maybe stay awake. Is that, is, does anybody have it that way, to stay awake? Or uh, So the imperative, Gregorio, corresponds to the imperative in verse 28, prosako. Prosako would be to hold fast or to be on guard. And here also you have the same idea, be on the alert. And it means to be awake to the danger that lurks that is most certainly going to come their way. Any group that has a church that gathers with elders and deacons and teaching, this applies to all because one thing we know is the battle never quits. And we looked last week at the two domains, darkness and light, truth and air, uh, death and life, and so on, and how God removes us from one spiritual domain and places it in another when we're converted. Now, what happens is that we still live in the same world that everybody else is in. And now that we're converted, we are fully on a different spiritual focus, life, belief system, and we are, whether we choose to be or not, at odds with the whole world. Now, we may think that's strange and out of the ordinary. Maybe we've had an idyllic view of life and history or America or whatever our, our thinking was influenced by. Um, but there is no such thing that's a world which is not at odds with God. The entire world lies under the power of the evil one. We saw that last week. The whole world lies in darkness. And I don't care if you have a Christianized society or a fully pagan one, you're still in some form of darkness or another until you are converted. And then the secondary thing that arises from that is that groups called church can become fully worldly and just have a few Christians in the entire group who are not feeling like they belong there. And they'll be looking for others who have exited the darkness through conversion into the light. So that influences the thinking here. And we'll also see now as we go on, it's time to start getting to chapter 21, that this will, there will be a huge crisis when Paul goes into Jerusalem. So that's what, what lies ahead. If you want to study chapter 21, I cited it, quite a bit of it last week in, in the sermon. Be on the alert. Um, and so Paul has admonished them. We've seen what he's told us about, about preaching the word, about having sound doctrine, correcting error, doing things biblically. It says in Acts 20, 28, at the beginning of this little pericope, watch out for yourself and for all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. We point out that the, the word for shepherd, for elder, for overseer are all describing the same people the leadership in the church. There are not multiple layers of leadership with um, a pyramid-style church government with multiple layers. That's one of the legacies of the institutional church is layers of authority that are created to keep the institution going, but those layers are made up of positions that aren't even defined in the Bible. 
and I'll, I'll save some time to read this little, this response I made to a online friend of ours. You can guess who. Yeah, I think I know. yeah and uh, he asked me a question, so I wrote this longer diatribe saying why it was a the question is basically of no purpose and it's meaningless. So that being said, anything other than the biblical definition of church leaders is if somebody's saying, well, we need to get a better person to be the whatever, the bishop over this or that, I say, why? There is no such thing. There's no bishops in the Bible. So why do we need a good one? <laughs> Wouldn't it be better to say, abolish the office altogether and get back to a biblical definition of the church. And uh, we'll talk about that. Let's explore that. So be on the alert is an imperative. It's found 22 times in the New Testament. And Jesus uses it a number of times. And uh, beware, be on the alert. Dr. Schnabel says, as he watched over the believers in the congregation, so they must be alert as they fulfill their responsibilities. Paul describes his Ephesian ministry succinctly as follows. One, he instructed, and there's that word, no thetone, no thetone, instructing the believers. He counseled them about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. By the way, no, no theo is... Somebody wrote a book about that called Nothetic Counseling. And it sounds good, but I can't agree with it. Because what they end up doing is taking the biblical world where um, you're able to admonish one another, Notheo, and create a version of counseling that's more like the secular. In other words, the topics and issues are already defined. Why do I feel like this way? Why am I unhappy about this? What do I have going on here? And so on. Well intended, let's do it more biblically and get out of the clinical version. But this is more uh, teaching. Oh, man. How, let me go up. Teaching and uh, instructing in the ways of God. And the basic things that need to happen are defined in the Bible, including forgiveness, repentance, encouragement, the joy of the Lord, the fruits of the Spirit, the means of grace, enduring hardship as a good soldier. Uh, the things that cause Christians to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord are the very things that resolve conflicts in homes and families. And you never get them all resolved because we live in a fallen world. So the imperative is to be on the alert. So instructed each one of the elders and each member of the congregation without exception. He never stopped instructing the believers during his three years, says Schnabel in Ephesus, a statement that is reinforced by the phrase night and day. So those three years, Paul spent instructing the people, the church in Ephesus, the leadership in Ephesus, and they had great teaching from the apostle himself for three years. And what we learned when we went into Timothy for those weeks is that they still had problems. There isn't good enough teaching in the whole world to stop churches from having problems because we live in a fallen world. Paul talked about the different ones that were uh, on the attack in Ephesus when he wrote to Timothy. So the dangers are real. They never go away. Be alert. Be on your guard. And stay true to the call of God. And teach the word patiently. Instructing. Correcting. Loving. Caring for one another. And that's what the Christian life looks like. If we think the problems are going to go away at some point, they don't. The, the end will be the, we need the resurrection. Okay, go ahead, Eric, please. Yeah, Bob, I was going to mention that Greg Areto, I've come across that a lot in just teaching the eschatology, and you'll oh, see yeah. it in uh, Matthew 24. You'll also see it quite often in 1 Thessalonians 5, where it's really the call for the Christian during the church age to be Greg Areto, to be on the alert. 
And the way to define it, I think, best is to say to be spiritually alert means that you're faithful in both doctrine and deed. So, for example, you see it right after the rapture in Matthew 24, 42. Right after he talks about the two in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one is left. He says, therefore, gregoreo, be on the alert for you do not know the day that the Lord is coming. And so that's what Paul is saying here. The alertness has to do with being faithful in doctrine and deed so as to distinguish ourselves from the pagans of the world who they have a different doctrine, they have a different religion, and therefore they act differently. So if you start acting like the world, it's because you start believing what the world says. Therefore, you're spiritually asleep. The opposite is awake or alert mm -hmm. to be in the doctrine and the deeds that come from Christ and his apostles. Right. Amen. Thank you. That's a very good point. And in that context, it has to do with the return of the Lord. And that's a very real thing. And I've noticed over the last however many years since I started teaching more eschatology in the 80s, there are a lot of Christians that will attack you for even saying what you're saying, Eric. And their attack usually means you're a defeated Christian because you're not willing to enter the battle. Because they conceive of the battle as Christianizing the world. And we see the battle is not succumbing to the darkness and to be, being faithful in word and deed in our calling as Christians. They think we need to rule over the pagans and make them do things our way. And that's the that's battles going on right now. And I'm, I've got the research done and, I'm the, and be, I've begun to write an article about the Great Commission and Matthew. And the dominionists universally uh, misinterpret Matthew 28, not to mention the Lord's Prayer. And they do so with such egregious error and, I mean, woeful concern about context. And they just do it. They throw it out there and say, see, this proves this. We're taking it literally. Making a disciple means creating Christian cultures of societies. And so uh, what I'll do in the article, I've, I did the first section. I have printed out every single time in Matthew, based on the Greek, that the word disciple shows up. There's 72 times the word disciple is used in Matthew. Not one time is a culture, a society, a geopolitical entity, a disciple. A disciple is a person committed to Christ by his grace, building on the rock, having gone through the narrow gate, uh, hungering for the word of God, trusting in Christ alone, and being fed on the pure word of God, and committed to the true teachings of Jesus in, the, in Matthew. That's what a disciple is. I don't, you can't decide. I'm, I'm waiting. I wrote an essay about this in 1993 and turned it in at seminary for a required uh, thing and then published it on critical issues. I'm still waiting for a dominionist to prove to me that I'm wrong about the Great Commission in Matthew. They ignore me. They ignore everybody who teaches what Matthew actually says. And they go on and say, well, the literal thing is discipling Nations, meaning telling nations to act Christian. Christianize, Christian is a noun, not a verb. Christianize is made up. And you can be Christianized, but what's a Christianized pagan? Where does a Christianized pagan end up? In hell. A lot of good you did. Now, does Matthew really tell us that all that matters is how life goes now in this world? Have you, has anybody ever read the parables of Matthew? So here's the problem, dear saints. Failure to read. Failure to read. I, would, I remember Dr. Versa put, read the text. We were going through Matthew. Some guy says, well, it can't be that way. Read the text. 
and they read it. Well, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't matter what it seems. Is what did God say through his apostle, Matthew? Yes, uh, Brian. A little pushback here, Bob. I'm sure you'll correct me where I'm wrong. Uh, you can, can't you be a disciple and not be saved? I mean, Jesus had disciples and they left him. Right, but that was proved that they were, he was of the devil. You mean Judas? So they, I mean, outwardly, yes. Outwardly, they appeared to be, but they turned out not to be the real thing. Judas would be a case. So you notice, and by the way, yeah. I've done, I've got all the Greek laid out. I did all the work. I got a stack like this just on the Great Commission. It says the 11, it doesn't say the 12. It was the 11 mm -hmm. who went on the mount, as they were told, that they went on the mount, and Jesus gives the Great Commission. Yeah. And the, these were real disciples. Judas was not one. Right. So when you're using the term disciple, you got to make the determination whether they were true disciples or just being called disciples. Well, it's not possible always on the scene of history to know because the invisible church right. and the visible church are valid categories. Yeah. But here's what you do, and I've talked about this a lot. If you teach the pure word of God and bring, don't skip anything, bring it out verse by verse, lay out the categories, preach the gospel every Sunday, talk about the faith once for all handed down to the saints, what Christian fellowship is about, what prayer is about, what Christian love is about, and what it is, and lay that out and keep doing it. Somebody may still sit there and not know the Lord. Well, you couldn't have any better teaching than Jesus himself. And right. Wasn't, didn't and, then, have, and then Judas went off. Yeah, but there were others that went off too. Didn't Jesus have a bunch of followers and then all of a sudden they all left? They weren't followers. That was in John 6, yes. Yeah. That's in John. True. Okay. But the point is, the little engine that couldn't, that I keep talking about, says just get with the plan and design a church that's appealing to whoever's in your neighborhood. Don't worry about if they're Christians. Fill the church and maybe something will rub off. And they're satisfied to Christianize a society so it's more comfortable for us, even if 95% are never converted and never hear the gospel. And I'm committed to exposing that air. The the institutional church is not the church defined in the Bible. I discovered that the first summer I was a Christian, I, I became, the second summer, I, I was converted in 1971, dropped it, I was a junior, starting my second quarter, dropped out of uh, chemical engineering, went to Bible college up here in North Central Bible College, found a great teacher there I was learning from Reverend Smith. And then the next summer, I took a summer course on historical theology. And I still got the big three books, the first, the writings of the very earliest church fathers. You know what I discovered as a brand new Christian? How quickly everybody went astray. The, the church history is a history of error. This error, that error, the other error. And then some people pushing back on it. And I thought, well, they must have known something we don't know. No. Not so much. You have you have your polycarp and a few people, but it goes astray so fast. And that should convince us of Scripture alone. So the question is this. Are we satisfied with Christianized whether or not there's conversion? And I did the thing last week on the two domains to prove something that I think is irrefutable. If you're in darkness, you're in the domain of darkness, you're spiritually dead, and you are under the lie, not the truth. The lie or the truth, darkness or light, death or life. I had a slide on that, last, and then we covered all of those. Verse after verse after verse. I'd like to see somebody refute that and say there's some in between called Christianized.
if Satan can be an angel of light and appear that way, it's really not something to, to uh, aspire to. So the reason we need to be on the alert is the danger lurks everywhere. And from your own admits, uh, cells will arise wolves not sparing the sheep. So we need to stay solid in the word. Um, the dangers are real. Be on guard and be awake. Be on guard and be awake. Um, turn to, with me to Ezekiel 34, 11, and we'll just read part of it. It's kind of a long section. Ezekiel 30. This isn't new. By the way, there, is, there was and is a valid institution. It's not the church. It's Israel. Israel is instituted by God. And you could be part of Israel, be circumcised, and part of institutional Israel. The heir that leads to all the problems, and Eric, God bless you for fighting this battle. He's fighting it on, on the internet. The heir is that the church replaces Israel. Now the church is the institution. That's the heir. The church doesn't replace Israel. Israel as an institution rejected Christ. But we're not done with the story. Okay, Ezekiel 34. Do you have it, Eric? I, I do. It's funny. Um, or do your, do I'm going to say, ironically, I'll be in this passage today. Oh, are you kidding me? No, no, it's wonderful. It's so funny. Bob and I don't always compare notes. I didn't know he was going to do that. No, that's great. Well, you, um, if you want to wait, we can wait for the No, sermon. no, no. I don't go this far. So do this a little preview. Yeah, no, this is great. It's all about the wicked shepherds in Israel leading all the right. people astray. All so, right, Ezekiel 34, 11. 11, it says this. It says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Wow. Read 12, 13, sure. 14. How far do you feel like going? Yeah, as a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited inhabited places of the country. Future prophecy about Amen. regathered Israel. Yes. God is the, who is the great shepherd? The Lord himself who gathers the sheep. And uh, uh, let's continue on with this verse here. And then I want to uh, talk about that document that I wrote for somebody that asked about it on the internet. So the dangers are real. Be on guard. Be awake. Don't fall asleep. Don't assume it's all, everything's okay. The dangers always lurk. <clears throat> So Ezekiel 30, you're going to preach on that. There's self-centered, abusive shepherds out there. And if you look at some of the things that have happened as far as the financial scandals, it's amazing how many millions people have scammed off of Christians. And, you, and that's, that's a sign that they're, not, that they're Judas and not true disciples. Because if you are truly a disciple of the Lord Jesus... You don't even think that tons and tons of money are going to solve your problems. And the idea of fleecing the flock for money is utterly absurd because what is money going to do? If you read Matthew, just read Matthew. What does it profit a person? This is also in Luke, I think in Mark. It's on all three if I remember. I may be wrong. What profit is there if you gain the whole world and lose yourself or lose your soul? The only way you can think biblically is thinking eternally. Thinking about the eschatological prize. I'm working on a sermon on that for December 3rd. The eschatological prize that we're running for, uh, only one in the, on the, in the Olympics wins the prize in the first place, but every Christian can win the prize of eschatological glory if they stay focused on the goal and running the race. But accumulating huge amounts of money. Some people have money. That's not a sin. Lydia in, in Philippi had money and he facilitated the church. But that's not the goal of the Christian. It may come, but it doesn't matter. 
All human beings have the same problem, whether they're rich or poor. Did you know that? If you, if you look at the movie, they keep telling Diane, we see some movie, rich people have all the problems. And she says, just the ones worth writing a movie about. <laughs> poor people problems are kind of boring. Yes, go ahead, Susie. Oh, here comes the mic. The mic. I was thinking, isn't this described for us in where the seed falls, like on the good soil, and the one that falls on the rock springs yeah. up, and what do we see? Wow, those people are sure on fire for the Lord. And then you find out later that all yeah. just dwindled off. And so we have so many descriptions of those who appear to be followers and then are just Yeah, and we're, we're warned about that. And we just simply don't know. Um, in Acts earlier, we saw Simon the Magi, Simon the Sorcerer, was baptized, and he was part of everybody. And then when it came time, when the, the, the apostles from Jerusalem came down and the people received the Spirit, evidently, the battery go dead? Uh, in there, if you dig in there, you'll find something with batteries in it. Um, we don't know ahead of time. We don't know. They, they went out from us because they were not of us, but you don't know. But, so what do you do? You preach the word with clarity. Ask God for grace to live the way the Bible teaches, which takes a lot of grace. It takes the power of God that we can be forgiving and kind and loving and serving one another that's all, that's all good. Doesn't mean there's not a Judas or something that may happen. And then there are people who, like Peter, who fall and come back immediately. And uh, we need to welcome back the repentant sinners. So be, be on guard, be awake. Paul's example showed intense personal teaching and care for each one. Notice he says, I did not seek to admonish each one with tears. Paul cared about individual Christians. He cared about their lives, their trials, their temptations, and the things that were taught to them and how they were treated. You see that in passages we looked at in Timothy. So the Lord's concern for his flock, the reward for the faithful shepherds who care for the flock is eternal, not temporal. And to think, well, this what, what's the point of caring for the flock? Nobody's, I don't get accolades. I don't get awards. Nobody thinks I did a good job, whatever may be going on. But we can't think like that because this prize is eternal. The Lord knows those who are his. And we are concerned that the chief, chief shepherd cares about what we're doing. And so that's what the point here. Paul cared. He's a, an apostle. In Acts 13, 22, it says, And after he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. That was in a sermon in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13. And what was the contrast with between David and Saul? Well, what was Saul like that created contracts? Saul was the one who was out for his own benefit. And uh, here we see Paul mentioning David would be a man after his own heart. And so Messiah is called son of David. And um, yeah, I, I have in my notes what you pointed out, Eric, 24, Matthew 24, 43. Stay awake. It, it says here, but understand this, if the master of the house had known what watch of the night that the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. 
How many of you know the thief doesn't tell you when he's coming? Exactly. So you have to be awake all the time and prepared. Matthew 25, 13. Therefore, be on the alert because you do not know the day or the hour. Um, thank you, Eric, for teaching Matthew and standing up for literal eschatology. Um, let me say this. Read, read the text. Read Matthew. Read Luke. Read Acts. Read the text. Don't skip. Pay attention to things. It's all right here. How can you read Matthew and come away with the idea that eschatology doesn't matter? Or that Matthew is teaching that we're supposed to turn the earth into a more heavenly status before Christ comes. Make the, make the world a more pleasant place for sinners to live in. That's not what Matthew's saying. So I think we should read the text. Paul did not stop. He did not get distracted. He did not quit because there was no personal reward for it. We were studying in 1 Corinthians 9 recently that he purposely worked with his own hands uh, because the carnal-minded Corinthians were going to claim he only wanted their money or they wanted to be a patron who said, okay, I'll pay your bills, but you're going to preach what I tell you to preach. Sort of like politicians do. Yeah. I got a billion dollars to donate, but let me tell you what position you're going to take on things. That's how the world works. But the way the church works is the shepherds teach what God has said once for all, and no amount of money would get them to go teach something else. And that's what Paul modeled in Corinth. Let me introduce the next verse here. Acts 20, verse 32, New American Standard Bible. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Now this is very rich. There's a lot of important terms here. First of all, I commend you to God and the word of his grace. You might, so he's leaving. Remember at the end here, they're, they're weeping and they found, he said, you'll see my face no more. And they were brokenhearted about it. We may think we need a person, but what we need is the Lord and the word of his grace. And yes, it's right that we're brokenhearted when we lose someone who is important to us and who meant a lot to us in our Christian lives. I was scouring the uh, YouTube for old gospel quartet music. I've been listening to that lately, reminding me of the first year of my Christian life. And when I was uh, looking around, I saw a, a 33 and a third RPM record in the back label. It was the Blackwood Brothers Quartet 1946 and the piano player they showed there listed was Hilton Griswold and he was one of my very first pastors and so I was a student at Iowa State University home for the summer when I was converted went back to Ames found and it was through an Assemblies of God Church I was converted so and found the one in Ames and when I was a student and here the pastor was this Hilton Griswold that was something else. This guy was just full of the gospel and joy and preaching and singing and getting on the radio and telling people about Christ. Amazing. And we were honored to have him come to our wedding. But here he was, 1946, sitting at the piano. So you think, man, that guy was so, what a blessing he was to me. Well, we'll be reunited in heaven. He was old in 1940, so imagine he's with the Lord now. But you know what? He was hated and rejected at that church by some people that were the mover and shaker. And somebody who had been there a long time, um, the, the old guard that, whose family was there all along, second, third generation, whatever it was, didn't like what he was doing. And they had a constitution saying the 
tithes to the people, pay the pastor part of it. So they wouldn't give one cent to the church, they give it all to missions, so he wouldn't get paid. Because they didn't like what he was doing. I thought, What's there not to like? Well, I'm sure he's flawed like anybody else, but he, he would just reach out to the whole city with the gospel. Amazing guy. But see, the Lord has his light, bright lights here and there in all different kind of groups. You can't just choose a group and know you're going to get something good when you get there. So I was blessed that Reverend Griswold was there singing this uh, gospel music. I commend you to God the word of, your, of grace, the word of his grace. Dear ones, here's what's going to keep you. Not a certain preacher, not a certain denomination, not a certain physical location. What will keep you is God and the word of his grace. Give you an illustration of that. I, I can't forget this verse. We uh, are the, the group that was down there on 24th and Nicollet. We, I was part of, I was one of the early preachers in 1980, 81, 82, 83. And we started seeing a lot of problems and abuses that had happened in the charismatic group we were part of. And uh, there were people that had come to the Lord through the charismatic the Lutheran renewal for one thing and then uh, but then all these things started happening it got really weird and some of the inner healing teachings and this and that so a book was written by a man by Dave, the name of Dave Hunt called The Seduction of Christianity so I got a copy of that book and I thought man that's all the problems we've had now he's, I don't agree with all the theology he ended up teaching but that was a great book so our pastor said, well, let's call him. I thought, well, why would he listen to us? He's a big, important guy. Well, he called him. So said, we'd like to have you come and speak. Okay, when do you want me? So we made a conference. And so here comes Dave Hunt to preach on seduction of Christianity. Piles of notes, he's preaching all this stuff. The Many people got very angry. We lost a big chunk of the congregation. People said we grieved the Holy Spirit. That... Correcting error was wrong, that you're hurtful if you correct error. You can't tell people that their favorite preacher, like Robert Schuller or whoever, was bad. You know, it just, just all be nice and go along with that. But it was too late for that after we had Dave Hunt. So I remember our pastor, and I was the associate pastor, sitting in a car with him when he was leaving town. And, and, and our pastor said, well, now what are we supposed to do? It's like, should we go join something else? What do we do now? So he says, I'll tell you what Paul told the elders in Ephesus. I commend you to God in the word of his grace. That's what he told us. I remember that just like it was yesterday. And at the time, I felt like that was insufficient to my shame. I thought, well, I don't think that's going to work. Because there are a lot of people that don't want anything to do with us anymore. The people, the places that used to have me come and preach would not have me, no more invitations, and so on. But now that I look back at that, and I remember that moment, you could not have received better advice. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Paul entrusted these elders to what we all need to be entrusted to, God and the word of his grace. The word of his grace, by the way, is a, um, what do they call it, Hennedeus? It, it means the gospel and all, the, all that that entails, the whole counsel of God, which is able to build you up. Build you up is uh, meaning that the church is God's building, the household of God, and it means that you are growing, that you're learning, that you're part of one another as stones placed together by God and his wisdom as we fit together. It's hard to build with stones with no mortar. you got to have just perfectly done to hold together, and only God can do that. And uh, as a household of God, and notice, and to give you the inheritance, there's a I'm glad they translated the definite article. The inheritance, Cleromia, 
is uh, the eternal glory to be part of the work of God that will last for all eternity, to be a people uh, with God and for God for all eternity, including, of course, the millennium and what happens after that. So here's a statement I put in my notes about this. <clears throat> the church consists of all those who are sanctified, which are the redeemed. We see those who confess Christ and live in fellowship with others who also uh, confess Christ and know him as their Lord are sanctified. So the sanctified ones, the hagia, this, this is from our word hagiazo, having been made holy. The saints are those who having, have been made holy. So when Paul writes to the saints who are at Ephesus, those who have been made holy, same word, uh, it says having been made holy in perfect passive participle. The ones having been made holy are the ones who have the inheritance and are secure in Christ. We cannot improve on that by creating. Here's, this will lead into that letter I was talking about. We cannot improve on that by creating a self-perpetuating religious system with built-in controls and safeguards for the organization. In such cases, the system may go on, but eventually will be comprised of religious adherence with no concern about the word of his grace. And have not no true eternal inheritance. And have never been truly made holy. The type of Christianity will fight, this type of Christianity will fight ruthlessly to keep its structure, traditions, and tangible assets. This simple verse, Acts 20, 32, condemns institutional Christianity, showing that it is not the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Now, that's my statement. And I'm working fervently for years to be able to prove that. Because in a sense, we're saying church history is a history of error with truth mixed in here and there. But the truth gets squeezed out of it. Now, we have a, uh, my son-in-law, Todd, shared with me a video of a pastrix. That's her term, right? Presbyterian. Now, Presbyterian is certainly known for strong creedal statements and demanding adherence to their historical doctrines, they're quite extensive. But here's someone who was preaching from Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 2 and saying literally that God lied to Eve. Eve was right, God was wrong. And the point of it is to support abortion. This is being done in an institutional church founded by people who have great statements of faith on many topics. And the institutional controls were built in hundreds of years ago. The required creeds are there. You have to follow them. You can't ditch any of this. And it doesn't have the power to convert a single soul because no one who knows Christ would teach that. God cannot lie, so he certainly didn't lie to Eve. I'll have to get a video or an audio clip of that. We're going to do some CIC radio on it. Now, have some others seen that? Yeah. A few others have. I know Eric has. Isn't that shocking? Go ahead and tell us. It's the worst teaching I've ever seen in yeah. five, ten minutes. It's the worst. Yeah. She literally says God's a liar and Satan told the truth. Yeah. It's well, now you see what's going on. Look at the news. People marching in favor of horrible atrocities and marching against the Jews. They're not able to see with their own eyes the difference between civilization and barbarism. I'm not anti-civilization. God, God ordained civilization. Uh, but the fact is, if we lose our moor moorings with Scripture alone, the word of his grace...
then just about anything goes. Now, I wrote this. I have about 15 minutes. I'll just read a, a brother that Eric and I interact with asked me a question. The question was, which Missouri, no, which synod, Lutheran synod in Minnesota is more woke? That was the question. And I thought, well, if you're talking about Minnesota, who isn't woke? The, oh, it's really something. But, but you probably know what he meant by that. So I use that as an a, a chance to put my thoughts together. And I told him that institutional Christianity is a problem. You can't find who's better or who's worse for the most part. Here's what I said. It's hard to answer that question about Lutherans. He assumed because we're in Minnesota, there's a lot of Lutherans, true enough. But I'm not going to blame them as being any different and just that Presbyterian pastrix somewhere is the worst I've heard about Luther's because institutional Christianity is not biblical and any institution which exists for centuries takes on its own identity in order to preserve power and influence. I've been doing a lot of teaching about that in my Bible class at church. The Lutheran synods can try to enforce liturgical and creedal requirements, but have no power to get anyone, including pastors, to actually believe certain truths. Most of the pastors are likely not born of God. I, I don't know. I'm not saying all. But God knows the heart. Not born of God, therefore not attached to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Therefore, whatever their degrees and denominational titles they're not part of the church, period. This is true with any group in the sense that there is the visible and invisible church, and only the Lord knows those who are his. But when the gospel is preached, the word of God purely taught, and Christ honored, there are doubtless many who truly know Christ and are born of God. Such a relationship is rather rare in Lutheran denominations, which have been around for centuries, some are newer, but their existence is institutional, not organic. Now, let me defend that with another story from our former pastor who was Lutheran that I had a conversation with. This was back in the 80s when Dave Hunt was on his way and he gave us this, the word of the Lord and the word of his grace. He told a story that when he was graduating from seminary, from Lutheran Seminary and ordained to be a Lutheran pastor, there was a whole bunch of people like him that were in their robes and they went through all this, what they had to do to be ordained and they get in the back where they're changing back into their ordinary clothes. And the, the, he said he heard the other pastors saying, that was a bunch of garbage, what a bunch of crap, I'm clever, done with that. They did not believe one word or should they just swore they believed? And he was shocked. He thought, I thought we were supposed to believe these things. They didn't believe it. And he, he couldn't, he, he, was, he was shocked. They wanted the job. The job had enough prestige, job security, whatever it is. I don't know what you get. Why, why would I want to do this if I wasn't a Christian? Chemical engineering doesn't seem that bad. But he, he was shocked. But that, did you think about it? all those pastors that, that he heard say there was a bunch of garbage and they're glad they're done with that. They're going to go out and make congregations recite the same thing that they think is garbage. Because if they don't, they'll lose their job. That is the perfect example of what institutional does. Now, you can say, well, but yet there's conservative ones. Well, Presbyterian was at one point. Why do you think the, edu the educational institutions in America are turning out people who hate Israel and don't even care about atrocities and are praising terrorists? Why is that going on? Certainly not because they're commanded to the Lord and the word of his grace. Institutions do that. That's what they do. 
We can't have no institutions because God instituted civil government. What did God institute? Through providence. He rules through providence. What, Eric, uh, Romans 13, is that it? Civil government is instituted by God, not to be the kingdom of God, but to preserve enough order so we can actually travel and preach the gospel and raise our kids and survive. At some point, the plug's pulled, and you get the great tribulation. And if it weren't, life would be impossible. God didn't eventually intervene. We're getting a preview of it. Now, does this make sense? I don't think I offended him because he emailed me again. So why should I be arguing about which synod is more woke? It's just institutional. Uh, I said to him, I no longer think in categories of which group is more liberal or conservative. The church as defined by the Bible is always built on the one true foundation, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and his apostles. I'm thinking of Ephesians there. Denominational institutions are defined in other ways. The institution rewards whoever makes the institution bigger, more powerful, and influential. The true gospel and pure teaching of the word of God does not do that for religious institutions. That is why most Christian educational institutions are liberal. This applies to any group that has been around over multiple generations. Institutions are usually run by the descendants of the founders and the influential people of the institutions. Eventually, their credentials give them credibility and status whereby they are rarely questioned no matter what they teach. Eric, remember Leron Schultz? Atheist in charge of the theology department. Is merely a different looking version of apostasy. I said to our friend, frankly, I should probably use different ter- terminology since individuals are apostates. Institutions never were alive in the sense that a person is born of the Spirit and attached to the head Jesus Christ. Now, there is really the bottom line of what last time we went through the two categories that uh, two spiritual domains that coexist geographically the darkness and light truth the lie the truth uh, death and life here is it may seem radical but I don't believe in revival you know why you can only revive the dead the dead are in the realm of darkness the realm of darkness uncovers the whole world the realm of darkness is not made alive by having an exciting meeting the realm of darkness is where people are until they're converted and if you're converted you're alive and if you're alive you're not dead if you're alive and you love the truth you're not dead and if you're filled with the spirit of God that's what's true for those who are alive, then you love the truth and not the lie. And so what God has called us to do is to feed the flock, care for people, teach the truth, preach the gospel, care for everyone, realizing there's difference, but not trying to make institutions revived when they can't be anything but institutions which are not the church. It is delaying, I don't know what happens but it's just delaying. You get done with all the revival and you still have an institution. And the institution is still not the church. And God bless Brother Hunt for telling us, he didn't tell us to start something different. He said, I commend you to the Lord and the word of his grace. So now what do we do? Just keep teaching the word of God. I don't know what else to do. Does that make, I hope this makes sense because I'm really at odds with just about everybody, it seems, but (laughs) institutions are a different thing altogether. 
And I talk about that in my letter to him. That is why the idea of revival is bogus. The only institution that is valid is Israel as instituted by Yahweh, who gave the structure, legal details, means of preservation and civil government that all institutions need. Israel is an institution. And God gave it what it needed to, re to survive as an institution. That institution here, and I go on, rejected Messiah and was left desolate only with future promise of restoration. Spiritually dead Israel was Israel after Pentecost who rejected salvation and a relationship with Christ. Revived Israel will not exist until the millennium when Christ reigns on the earth. But that Israel is still alienated from God. Institutional Israel does not need revival. You can see that idea in Peter's call to repent so that, quote, seasons of refreshing will come from the hand of the Lord, Acts 3.19. That applies to Israel. Israel is an institution. Yes, uh, Brother Bill. Yeah, I just want to make, uh, get your comments on Habakkuk 3, chapter 3, verse 2. Okay. It says, Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear, O Lord, revive your work. In the midst of the years, in the midst of the, of the years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. Yes, absolutely. And that is addressed to Israel, who is an institution. Yep. But absolutely. Are you, are you saying that we, as God's people, don't need to be revived now? We're not Israel. We're not an institution. Well, it, if, we're, if, we're, if we're needing to be revived, that means we're dead, alienated from God, lost, and headed to hell. We need to be converted. Yeah, I, I guess I, I just wanted to make, uh, if I can find Habakkuk has written to Israel that had a mixture of dead and alive people, some of who had faith and some didn't. It, you know, I, 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 I'm a, I think this is related somewhat to what you're saying. This is, this is a, uh, uh, a comment from um, R.C. Sproul's Table Talk magazine. And it says, um, we're talking about the Old Testament, New Testament, Jews, right. Gentiles. It says, though we heed the teachings, uh, his teachings, Christ's teachings in the Gospels, we can forget that Jesus is a prophet. In fact, he is a prophet par excellence. As the word of God, he speaks by the Spirit throughout Scripture. Some people believe that Jesus has nothing to say about topics never mentioned in the Gospels, even if they are discussed in other biblical books. But all the doctrines of the Bible are the doctrines of Jesus, even if they are not directly recorded in the Gospels. Okay, that so, doesn't mean so, the church I mean, is the new Israel. Right. R.C. Sproul has defective eschatology. Seriously defective eschatology. He's a great teacher, but his eschatology is unbiblical. And all of Reformed traditional reform is the same way. And that's why you have the idea of institutional Christianity amongst reformed. And I don't disparage R.C. Sproul or Francis Schaeffer. I dedicated a book to his memory because he helped me think clearly. I agree with that. But you can't have a dead church that's a church defined biblically. Because if you're not attached to the head, you're dead. And that means you're not a Christian and you're bound for hell. If you are attached to the head, you're alive and you're breathing the life of God and you're part of the family of God. You're being built on the rock and you have eternal promises. And to be revived, you have to be dead and you can't be dead and be attached to the head. That's all I'm saying. But you're, you're, you're talking about Israel. I'm talking about the church. I know, but aren't we this, don't we need reviving like Israel did? We're, no, because of, because of the day of Pentecost. Well, when, when Peter said, repent so the seasons of refreshing will come from the hand of the Lord, he's talking about the millennium. If you want to participate, Peter is saying, because the Holy Spirit is poured out. All these different people received it. They're part of it. They're built on the rock. They're alive. They've received the promise of the Spirit. They're under the new covenant. But Peter says, repent, the seasons of refreshing will come. 
He's talking to those who are instead choosing to stay in institutional Israel and rejecting Messiah. And we'll see that when we get to Acts 21. Paul is going to go the, to Jerusalem. He's going to, we're going to see what happens when institutional Israel rejects the gospel. Then could you just briefly talk about the Great Awakening? Was that not a, an awakening? Okay, the Great Awakening, the Reformation, all that is the gospel coming back to institutional Christianity to the point where some people are converted. Well, well, if we're going to create another institution, no. Because they created another institution, and the, the institution they created is saying God, God lied to Eve. Yeah. We'll, we'll always get the same result. You get the, if you're dead, you think like dead people. Okay, so were those institutions so revived that they stand strong now, solid in the faith? No, because don't we all tend to drift away to some degree in the church? But those who become spiritually alive don't turn around and become dead. You don't go dead alive, dead alive, dead alive. You're either dead or alive. Well, then the, then the term revive means is meaningless. Yeah, if it did, the term revive is meaningless. But could I talk? Brother. Yeah, I, Go I'm ahead. sorry, I, I just need to clarify some things. Yes. What we really need to do is how did Jesus build his church? And what he did, and this was God's plan, he took 12 defeated people and he told them to go out and make disciples, okay? And it's one believer at a time. So let's just not even use the word revival. We could talk about that, and that's a big discussion, and I could talk about that too. But the way that the church has been built and is being built is one believer at a time. So if you want revival, fill yourself with God's Holy Spirit, which is the Word of God, mm -hmm. and then go out and preach Christ, okay? Now, we were out there yesterday for three hours, and we talked to all kinds of people, and that's not virtue on us. We're not necessary. I'm not a good workman, but we are to be available. We are to be, Jesus said, the workers are few, okay? Yep. And so if you want revival, it's one person at a time. If you, and and you've got to ignore Matthew 7 if you think the whole culture is going to be changed. Most people will not believe, but we are to go out Right. And preach Christ. That's the plan that God well, gave I'm, us. I'm asserting, I agree with you, brother. Absolutely. Once we're going, look at the slide from last week. I have verse after verse after verse. Two domains, you're in one or the other. If you're in a domain of light, truth, and life, you're alive. And this is what you need. God in the word of his grace to keep us in that solid inheritance. The institutions are not the church. And so when people get excited and go to meetings day and night in, at the institutional church, and then at some point they get tired of that and they go looking for somewhere else. Well, whatever the case, I've gone too long. Eric, you're going to preach on, on Ezekiel 34, right? Yeah, yeah amen. And the, the wicked leaders of Israel were their shepherds, but revival looked like for them, for example... Um, they would have to revive, for example, letting the land remain fallow every seven years. If that's the type of revival that we're looking for, then all of the farmers in America are sinning if they don't allow their farmland to remain fallow every seven years. Well, that's exactly what Jonathan Kahn said. Exactly. And the problem, again, is if you're premillennialist, you say there's a kingdom that's coming and it's Israel. If you're amillennial, you are Israel. If you're postmillennial, you have to build Israel. And that's the problem with R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul is a partial preterist. He believed that Jesus Christ's parousia occurred in 70 A.D. The problem with that is the parousia, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.8, 
is in fact when the resurrection occurs and the destruction of the Antichrist. So the question I would ask to R.C. Sproul today is when was the resurrection in 70 AD? Because according to 1 Thessalonians 4, that's when the resurrection occurs is that the parousia, R.C. Sproul said the parousia occurred in 70 AD. That's a big problem yeah, because well, you believe that the church is Israel. Replacement theology is the reason for the confusion. Exactly. Okay, I believe Israel will be revived. Yes, one more. We got to. Yeah, and I'm sorry, but I do. I like uh, Eric. Just want to clarify a couple of things because what was said is in the verse was revive my word, and in um, Hosea four it says my people perish for the lack of the word. And so what we are called in John 1 also says, no one has ever seen God, the only one himself, God, who has ever, or who is in close fellowship with the Father has made him known. We're to listen to Christ. So it's like Eric said, it's what we're reviving is the word. Get the word out to people. The Amen. word converts people. Well, well, I believe that this still stands right here. And it's not a sin to do... Dave Hunt was right to tell us that. He didn't tell us what group to join. He told us to do this. So that's what we do. Now, doing that leads me to disagree with him on some of his doctors. But that's just fine. I, we talked about that, too. We've got to be Bereans. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Help be with Eric as he preaches the word to us. Help us to be those who search the scriptures and get our categories the best we can according to what you've taught. And may we continue to preach the gospel to all. And thank you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your patience.